Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode 8 of series 4 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. A special mention to Sport Endorse who are sponsors of this series. They're an online sports sponsorship platform that connects athletes with companies all around the world. The Irish-owned online marketplace has over 4,000 athletes to date. For more information, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Also, a special mention to the Shire Baron Cafe in Killarney in County Kerry, who are also supporting the podcast too for this series. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Director of Football for Cognito Schools in the Middle East, Sean O'Shea. Sean has spent five years as Head of Football Operations at Nada Sheba Sports Complex in the UAE and has worked with some of the world's biggest football clubs and players. The former AIK Stockholm assistant coach grew up in Huddersfield to Irish parents and is now one of the most sought-after coaches in Dubai. He recently obtained his UEFA Pro license through the FAI. There's no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Sean, thanks for taking time out to come on the interview podcast. How are you keeping? Yeah, very good, thank you. Yeah, pleasure to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Brilliant, we've been trying to get this over the line the last couple of weeks. You've uh, you've a yeah. lot on between, I don't know how you balance your time between family and work and weekends, you're accommodating and how do you how do you balance it? Then get what's the what's the what's the secret? Uh I don't know. I, I don't know if there's if there's a, a secret as such. I like to write a lot of lists. Um <laughs> so I know exactly I know exactly what I need to be doing um throughout the week. And my wife keeps me in check as well. Um, and it's just about prioritising, I suppose. But yeah, there's a lot a lot going on, like you say, in terms of uh, running the, the football school and then the, the commentary uh, for the Ad Not Pro League and the radio and individual stuff. But yeah, look, it's just it's just down to scheduling, really, and knowing what's going on and prioritising and making sure we get everything covered, really. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And what was... Um... Yeah, look, before we go into COVID, let's kind of go through the whole the whole career path. I'd like to kind of bring our, our guests back, you know, and, and allow our listeners kind of gain insight into their into their career um, and, you know, what shaped them into the person they are today. So with the name O'Shea, uh, you're definitely an Irish heritage um, in some shape or form. Do you want to kind of give us a bit of an insight? Yeah. Um, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's it's hard, it's hard to to get away from one, and I wouldn't want to. Look, we 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 were born. I have five brothers and sisters. Between I was five kids, you know, two brothers, two sisters, and myself. And uh, we were born and, and brought up in Huddersfield, uh, you know, to Irish parents and, and grandparents and whatnot. And um, it, I suppose the, the north of England is littered with 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 Irish, like you know, first descendant, second descendant uh, generation Irish. Um, and we were we were part of that, and it's how we grew up. You know, we we went to St Patrick's Junior School, St Patrick's Church every week, and we were altar boys, and we socialised with Irish families, and you know, everyone around us was kind of Irish and stuff. So it, it was normal to us because you don't really think about these things when you when you're growing up. But um, 
suppose as 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 you've grown up, you kind of realise where your roots are and where you've come from, and you know, parents have moved back home now, and it just becomes part of, of who you are. Like it's the fabric of of who you are. It's in your DNA and it's in your blood. And I think you know, Irish people are are uh, tremendously proud of of the roots and where they come from and what they've had to fight for, and that that carries through you know generations. And um, you know, we're certainly part of that. And, and and grown up and brought up in that way. So yeah, you know, I've always I think I've always said before as a bit of a joke that Huddersfield is like a, a little island or a mini island because everyone around us seemed to be O'Shaughnessy's, O'Shea's, O'Sullivan's, Nolan's, <laughs> Fallen's, you know, Higgins. It was just the way it, it's just the way it was. And like I say, you, you didn't really realise what was going on until you were a teenager and then it was already part of you anyway then. So and what other sports did you play as a child? Like obviously, you, you played football, but did you play Irish football, Gaelic football? Yeah, I, I played. I think I played. I played Gaelic football before I actually played football. Um, that was through like Huddersfield Irish Centre, a guy called Ollie Walsh from Kerry. You know, fierce uh, Gaelic footballer, um, and anyone who was good at athletics or any sport, you know, that went to the Irish Centre, he would get them in. And we used to train in the park during the week, and and then play against. Teams Leeds and Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester as kids and travel around and Brothers Pierce it was called and um, still going today like I, they must have been around since the seventies um, and I probably joined in the late eighties and uh, yeah it was just something we were pushed into I, I guess because you know you, your dad played or your granddad played rugby or played Gaelic football it's just what you were pushed into and and uh, we can or I followed certainly followed the same but. Um, you know, want to start playing football or soccer? You know, that, that was kind of it. Then it kind of got me, and uh, I didn't, I didn't play much Gaelic football after becoming a teenager because I couldn't really because I was too busy playing football. But uh, yeah, look, that they, they were the two main things. I, I was also a keen sprinter when I was younger as well. Like I, um, I think my best time for the hundred meters was a ten point seven seconds when I was sixteen, so pretty quick. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, I, I ran quite a good level. I ended up running for like the North of England schools. Um, but at 16, I had to make a decision. What was I going to do? Was I going to be a sprinter or a footballer? And I was always going to be a footballer. I was never going to change. So, On that point, before we get um, to that, I'd like to, you know, you're obviously big into sports science and, and while you're at now, you're able to identify these qualities in players. Um, but can you see any transferable skills or between Irish football and and football, you know, from your your ear, you know, you would have played that when you were younger, and then you obviously pursued your, the the route of of uh, of football or soccer as we call it. But can you see how they complement one another in any way? I, I think. Look, uh, the the biggest thing for me is the sort of power, the strength, and the aerobic capacity of Gaelic footballers. I think is phenomenal. Like it's something else. Um, even now, you know, living in Dubai and playing amateur football and played for Dubai Irish quite a lot. And the lads who grew up playing Gaelic football, they're always the fittest and the strongest lads. Um, and I've always kind of admired that. And I think it's the same with rugby players as well. You know, there's a different a different kind of strength and a different mentality than there is with footballers. Um, whether it's transferable, it's difficult because it's different culture and it's different sports. But I think that kind of fitness and the volume that Gaelic footballers have in their bodies is... It's phenomenal. I can, um, yeah, if you could get footballers to train at the intensity and the level that Gaelic footballers did, you know, you'd have something serious on your hands. You you touched on there, you had to make a decision and you decided to go down the route of, of football. 
you're a promising player. You were scoring, I believe, in in every game. You were on fire. Um, and you, yeah, you were you were, you weren't with. Were you with the academy system in Huddersfield, or was that just before the official yeah. academy system came in? So I I played sort of club football. From I mean, I started playing football when I was under under eights, um, and that was Huddersfield schools. And I think academy football came in in ninety. I think it was ninety three, which is when I would have been under twelves, under thirteens kind of age. So from under nines to under twelves, it was Huddersfield schools. That was you know town boys we used to call it, um, and you'd play against you know Trafford boys, which became the United Academy and mm-hmm. you know Leeds schools and all this kind of stuff. That's how. That's how it went. So there was just a progression from, you know, school by football into academy football and through then, yeah. And it became more structured, more regulated, etc. And that moment, so there was a year that kind of everything went pear shape as such. Um, your dreams came yeah. crashing, crashing down. Can do you want to kind of just give a bit of an insight into that? Because I think that really shaped you into the person you, you are today. Yeah, I mean... I suppose you don't really think about it too much when you're in it. It's more when you reflect when you're older and you look back at kind of how you dealt with it and what you maybe could have done better. But for me, I grew up as a promising footballer and I always excelled, you know, all the way through the age. It was until I hit that that sort of 16, 17 level where you join scholarships and YTS and you're playing with the best of the best. And um, that was a tough level you know, to, to, to go up to anyway. But yeah, I broke my shoulder and had an operation on that and that kept me out for a while. And when I came back, it, it, it was from constant dislocation and then dislocated again when I came back. And um, I couldn't get fit enough, I think, to, to get back into it. And like anything, if you're competing with people who are training every day and playing every day at a very high level and you're, you've missed probably a whole year, when you look at it, you can kind of understand why you're you know, probably quite a way behind these people. And you didn't realise at the time, you couldn't kind of understand why you weren't the best player anymore or up there with the best players. But when I, when I reflect on it and working in professional football at top level, you you know that you need to be on it every single day and be playing. And, you know, that game experience and training experience, is, it, it means a lot. So um, it was difficult. And of course, the rejection of being released was, was horrendous because... Through my whole teenage life, I always thought that I'd be a professional footballer and that's how my life and my journey was going to go. So that rejection was was pretty tough um, because you don't see it coming. And when, you, when you're young and you're immature and you haven't experienced it before, it's quite hard to deal with. And, um, you know, luckily I had a good, a good family behind me to support me and kind of push me on to the next thing. And, um, you know, a previous history teacher when I left Huddersfield, was chairman of Buxton Football Club, who took me to Buxton and I ended up playing at Buxton for two years. So I had a good network around me, I suppose, and people that sort of cared about me and, and tried to carry me forward and keep me going in football. So the fall from Huddersfield was quite tough, but I still stayed in football by playing for Buxton for a couple of years. But then I kind of realised that I wasn't going to be a championship footballer or a Premier League footballer, probably even a, a League One footballer. So it was kind of like, do I want to fight like people do you know in lower league football and, and continue to play or do I want to do something else and that's how you know getting in, getting into coaching came about looking back now you you know you can join the dots but at the time when when that happened you know you you, you touched on that you had your family behind you and you're a good network of people but 
you must have really struggled with your identity because you know you would have focused and your identity would be on that route to becoming a yeah a footballer with with Huddersfield. Um, but then to be released, did you kind of go off the rails, or or did you? How did you? How did you deal with that? Um. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I mean, I didn't go completely off the rails, but I suppose when when you're young aspiring footballer when you get to that age as everybody does at 16, 17 and people start drinking and partying and going out on the weekend and you're not quite part of that because you you know you're going to bed early because you want to get up in the morning and play football well and you know it's not you know the right thing to do um when football kind of came to an end that 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 went big you know going out and, and, and getting a bit wild but it, it was difficult because like you say I always thought I was going to go down that path and be a footballer. So I didn't really concentrate so much at school. I wasn't very academic. I didn't leave school with loads of GCSEs, you know, as, as you do in England. So I found myself in a place of like, what what do I actually do now? Because I didn't have a good education. I didn't go to college. I couldn't get into university. I didn't really want to go to university. So I had to start working. And of course, the work that I did was, you know, working in factories and, you know, for uh, furniture production lines and, Stuff like that. Whilst I was playing part-time football, so it was uh, it was a real struggle. Look, you work with good people, and it was a good time. You have a bit of a laugh and whatnot. But um, it was difficult because I was at a point where I had no idea what I was going to do with my life because I always planned on being a footballer. So it was hard. It was tough. It was really tough. Do you think that experience, you know, helps you today to build that connection with these players when when you know when when they come over to do the one to one coaching because they're you know they're recovering from injury which we'll touch on soon um mm. do you think that that experience you went through you're able to kind of relate to more of them on a on a personal level yeah definitely because you know what they're going through i think from an individual point of view as a coach and also obviously working with young pros when i was in sweden coming through from you know, the youth team into the first team where they're trying to get a first team contract as well. Um, it was more relatable. But also from a personal point of view, it made me more determined to get it right from a, going down the coaching line than from, you know, from a football point of view. I was kind of telling myself, I oh, feel that I failed as a footballer. So where I failed as a footballer, I won't fail as a coach. And we, you know, so you would have went down the coaching line. You would have been very young when you started that. You know, I know a lot of coaches or are, are, mm. are a lot of guys or are, are, are women are, are starting their career young now, going down that route. But back then, you must have been one of the, the youngest, were you? In 1920, I think, when you started. I was, yeah. Yeah, I was 19 when I did the, with the FA coaching certificate, it was called then. I was the, the youngest. I did it with two friends, but I was the youngest on the uh on the course, of course, now in football, when you do your scholarship at football clubs, sixteen to nineteen, they do the A and the so the B and the A license automatically because they know that most people are not going to make it as a pro. So you get that, but it wasn't like that then. When I got released, I was released, and that was it. It was over, um, and you're kind of on your own a little bit to find your own way. So it was my, it was my parents because, like I said before, I only ever thought about being a player. You never think about the other elements of football, where there's coaches and fitness coaches and goalkeeper coaches. And, Obviously, now the sport scientists and analysts and whatnot, there's loads of different roles you can go down. Um, but it was my parents that pushed me into doing the coaching. I never thought, even thought about it. I didn't even really want to go. And it was at Leeds University. And um, they said, just go and just do it. And they pushed me to do it. And I, obviously, <laughs> it was a great decision to do it. But it was down to them, really, to force me because they knew that I loved football and I wasn't going to go to uni or anything like that. So it was like, what what are you going to do? And they pushed me into, into coaching. So it's thanks to them, I suppose. 
what values do you think you know been brought up in that Irish household I know is in, in, in Hosefield but what values do you think your parents instilled in you that you can probably see more so I know especially since you have have a child I think the, the biggest thing is work ethic you always had to work you know you couldn't um spend any time sitting around feeling sorry for yourself it was you've got to get up you've got to get your head down you've got to get on with it and you've got to find what the next thing to do so you have to work you've got to work um and I suppose the belief that you can do it as well like you've got to give it a try and what was the worst that could happen it was like moving to Dubai you know like that was a strange thing to do in 2003 as a 21 year old but what was the worst that could happen but that was the big thing it was always about no moping got to work and you you came to Dubai in 2003. That's because your brother was over here, was it? And and how yeah. things really kind of got going for you when you came over. Yeah, I mean, I did my my coaching certificate when I was eighteen. I passed that when I was nineteen, and then for a couple of years, I did little bits of coaching um, whilst I was still playing sort of semi pro. Um, and then when I gave up on the sort of football journey, it was like, okay, what what am I going to do now? And my brother was living in Dubai. He ran the scuba diving centre at Jumeirah Beach Hotel. And my parents just said, look, why don't you go to Dubai and spend some time with your brother and figure out what you want to do? I was like, okay, I can do that. So I, I moved over, yeah, just turned 21. It was, I think it was June the 15th, 2003, I moved over. And um, I worked a little bit in the dive centre. I'd saved a bit of money and um, I ended up setting up my own sort of soccer school academy if you like or soccer school is probably a more appropriate word called IFA which it actually still exists today um so we set that up 2004 you know coaching kids in schools it was um Dubai was a different place then it was very small very small community everybody knew each other there weren't that many schools like there are today I think there's 115 football academies in Dubai now back then there was probably two it was like I think there's there was esports there was IFA um, and a couple of others that were kicking around, maybe a few very small, you know, other independent ones. But it, it was really, really small, and there wasn't that many facilities. Um, but I set it up, and there was three or four of us coaching, and we had about a thousand kids a week, you know, that we were coaching. Mm-hmm. The end, we had centers in Dubai, Fajera, um, Ras Al Khaimah. So it was good, like, and you know, like as a young kid, it was it was good. But I wasn't very business savvy. Um, so running the business side, it was quite difficult, but it was a great experience. And it was that was the, I suppose, the real start of my uh, coaching career, if you like, at grassroots level. Yeah, because that was kind of the catalyst for you getting the opportunity to go into Norway then. And that's where kind of things kicked on another, mm. another, you know, it's amazing when you look back, all these dots connect. But at the time, you must have been wondering, what am I doing leaving Dubai, going to Norway? Um, I don't think it's bright that yeah. much, is it? No, no, no. I mean, like, Norway was a, a a great experience, but uh, it was right up in the north of Norway in Tromsø. It was four months of the year, it was dark, four months of the year, it was light, you know, 24 hours a day, and then four months was normal. It was it was a great experience, like I loved it, and just opportunity came about to go there, and, you know, that job um, was with the under-16s to start off with, then I moved to be with the under-19s, and I was playing in the third division. Um. But again, it was just opportunity. I think I, I'd, I'd been in Dubai for six years. The financial crisis came in 2009, so obviously that hit Dubai quite hard. And I'd realised that I didn't want to be a grassroots coach forever, so I wanted to try and... So then that opportunity came. I 
out of nowhere, really. And um, I took it because I think I think once you you um, you move abroad, you know that you can always go home. You know, as a backup, it could save you a little bit. So moving to Norway, it was just like another step. Right? Okay, well, I move to Norway, and hopefully that works out. And if it doesn't, then I can always go back to Dubai and go back home. You kind of build build those bases that you can go back to. You know. How, in what way do you think, so you, you would have done a bit of coaching, you obviously played in the UK, then you came to Dubai and that was like the early stages of your coaching. And then you came, you went to Norway and obviously back to Dubai and then to Stockholm back to Dubai. But how do you think, would say, that, that experience in Norway shaped you into a coach? You know, if you had to look back at it now, how could you summarise that? How could you define, I learned this in Norway and it helped me to become a coach? Well, I think um, it was, the, I suppose it was the first experience of working with players that were on the verge of trying to make it as professional. So it was very different to what I was doing with the young kids. Um, you know, Norway's and well, Scandinavia as well, is they do sport very, very well and culture like it's just embedded in them they do they do summer sports in the summer and winter sports really well in the winter but for me it was the experience of working with those players who were 16 years old going into under 18s that wanted to go on to be professional so it was my first experience of periodizing your training week like what types of sessions to do on what day you know you you really delving into like your tactical approach what what were you like you know you find out a lot about what what are you like as a coach like how do you talk to the players? How do you work with the players? What style of football do you want to play? What players do you have at disposal? Which ones are the promising players? How do you how do you work with the fitness coach? How do you work with the sports science guys? Like, you know, it, it gave me that introduction to everything that is key, you know, to being a good coach. And of course it was in a country where English wasn't the first language, so there was that barriers that you had to overcome there. Now luckily all the in the club was a different story, you know, because there weren't that many foreign players knocking around in the north of Norway, so you had to try to adapt. But um, yeah, it, it was it was great. Like it, it gave me. It's weird as well because I was quite junior, I suppose, in my coach education. So you have an idea of what you think is the right thing to do, but it was only when I did the coaching courses and got the the higher levels, I realised wow, I was doing some of the right things, kind of blind, just on a feeling, but then. Obviously, the coaching courses gave me more, more structure, more detail, and that helped me progress um, through my career. But Norway was a great experience. I worked with some great players that I'm still in touch with now. That have, one of them's captain of, of the first team in Tromsø. Still speak to him really, really regularly. Um, you know, culturally, it was a big difference living in the Arctic Circle. You know, prior to that, living in the desert here. You know, the darkness, northern lights. You know, skiing down to the used to ski in the in the winter. You could ski down to the to the training ground, you know, because you trained indoors during the winter and stuff. It was a fantastic <laughs> experience, like. And again, it's probably something I didn't really appreciate so much when I was there. It's just something that you did, but when you you look back on it and you reflect, like it was, it was a phenomenal experience that not many people get to do. You was it in in Norway, uh, Sean, that players could only play within their club within the town they were born in. Until they were sixteen, was that there? Was that there? Or that it's a, it's, yeah, it's actually the same in Sweden as well. So it's both. It's both. Yeah. And what do you think the benefit so whilst, of that is? Um. Well, I I think it's beneficial for the clubs, um, because they know the kids, the pool of what they've got to pick from. They know that 
from a club point of view, if they produce a player from nine years old in their academy to sixteen, and then he goes off to a club, they get the benefit of the money that comes from that. Um, they know that other clubs can't poach their kids, so they know who they're going to have in their system and in their age groups all the way through the club, which I think is great. I think it's great for the players because they have familiarity, they have the right, the same environment as they go through, providing it's a good environment, but you know, they get to work at the, at the club that they're probably attached to because that's where they were born. You know, for me, born in Huddersfield, I'm a massive Huddersfield fan. So I think the security of not knowing that your players are going to get get stolen from you, you can plan really well and work really well with, you, with your players. And then, you know, at 16, okay, when they leave school, that if they go off somewhere else, so be it. If you look at like Victor Lindelof's a great example, you know, um, played for Vesteros uh, in, in Sweden until he was 16. AIK, where I was, Hammerby, Yougard uh, and Malmo, all these clubs wanted him. But he left school at 16 and then he went and signed for uh, Benfica. And every time he makes a transfer or every time he moves, that club who are in the second tier of Swedish football get quite a bit of money for it. So I think it's benefits to both. I think the clubs benefit really well and I think the player benefits from it as well. And you, you returned back to Huddersfield in 2012. I'm surprised you didn't stay there then. But you know, you're back to your boyhood, boyhood club, the dream you wanted to, to be back in the club and mm-hmm. progress maybe through the, the ranks. Yeah. I think um, I think if I'd have stayed in Norway, would I have progressed? Possibly, I, I don't know. Um, there was probably an element of homesickness as well. That was 2000 and. 11, so I'd been away from England for eight years, which is a long time. And um, I wanted to get you know, onto the uh, B licence. Um, and there was an opportunity to work at Huddersfield Town. Of course, it was my boyhood club, and I think where I failed as a footballer, like I said, I'd like to make up for that as a coach. So I thought, you know, let's move home and, you know, back to a, an English speaking country and there. Uh, back to the club that I love and, and let's give it a go and see see what happens. But uh, the shake of Dubai came calling, did he? Or, or did you did you end up uh, rubbing shoulders with him in some shape or form in 2013? How did that come about? Well, it, again, it was my brother. You know, the, the first time I came to Dubai was because my brother, and so was the second. Um, he through his dive centre that he ran, um, just by chance, ended up servicing His Highness's kit one day. Um, and the relationship between those two grew. And then when uh, Nadal Sheba Sports Complex opened up and they developed the football facilities, they wanted somebody to come out and be head of football. And I think it was just a passing comment from my brother, like, oh, you know, Sean works in, in football. He's a football coach. Like, he'd probably be interested in that. And, I came over and and uh, discussed what what the role would be and the opportunities and stuff, and decided that that was a better option than what I had at Huddersfield Town. Weirdly, and how like how did you formulate that pitch or discussion to him? Like, um, you know, did you realize the 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 severity or such a high role it would have been at the time? Um, because obviously the facilities are phenomenal. Yeah. It was a weird one because it wasn't really a pitch for me. It was more about what the vision was for the facility. Like it, it's not um, a commercial property. It's very, very private. It's very exclusive. 
Um, you know, no, you can't just turn up and, and use the facilities. Um, so it was more about the vision of having the best teams and the best players. You know, visiting Dubai and the UAE, training there, putting a positive spotlight on the country for a place for you know top athletes and top teams to come and train. So it was all it was quite unbelievable, I suppose, because you're thinking, you know, do I deserve this opportunity or is it really going to go the way? think it will but obviously Dubai being Dubai and as successful um, as it is and doing things very well and being able to attract the kind of profiles that they attract you kind of thought well it's probably probably will happen and over a period of five years it did like you know I, I got to work with some phenomenal teams um, you know and be quite in the mix with team training camps with you know United with AC Milan with Real Madrid like big clubs you know international teams as well and then you see those kind of players that come through and the managers that come through and the exposure that you get. But then on the other side, I used to go and visit the clubs that we work with. So I've been to Hamburg for a week. I went to Bayern Munich for three or four days when Pep was the manager and been to United, I've been to Everton, I've been to Southampton, I've been everywhere. Like, and, um, you know, those experiences and that education has, has carried me forward really well. So, yeah, of course, when I went into the job, I didn't know exactly how it was going to go but it went unbelievably well. And, um, you know, all the players that I work with from an individual point of view because of the relationships that we've built with football clubs, you know, got me working with some of the best players that have played the game, or certainly the Premier League, um, and ultimately got me the job at AIK as well. So it was it was the best decision I ever made, really. And what lessons do you think you learned from that opportunity, you know, to work with the likes of Madrid? Um, going over to, to Pep Guardiola and, and Everton and work with all those clubs well, you know what, what I suppose that was your first real exposure to the, the top of the top was it yeah it was yeah look and like you see so many different um, so many different types of sessions so many different types of coaches um, of course the similarities there's only so many ways you can do possession sessions and small sided games but it was talking to the coaches and just finding out what they were about, what they were trying to achieve, why they structured sessions in certain ways. Um, and of course, you got that from German clubs, from English clubs, from Spanish clubs, from Italian clubs and those types of coaches. And I remember Eddie Howe came over with Bournemouth a few times and fantastic guy, and, you know, obviously doing really well now at Newcastle. But I used to take little videos on my phone of like different sessions, like whether it was Dortmund or Hamburg or whatever it might be, just, things that you look at and think, oh, that, that looks like an interesting session. Maybe I could try that with, with, with a group of players, depending on what we wanted to achieve. And he actually asked me for all that. Like he said, oh, have you got copies of it? I said, yeah, I can stick it on a USB for you. And I gave him a USB with probably about 30 different sessions on. But they were only little snippets, like 15, 20 seconds. But, you know, he said the same thing. Like, look, you never, you never stop learning as a coach. Like, just absorb everything. Like, visit everyone you can. Watch every session. Look at how coaches talk to players. Look at how players interact with each other different types of activations, war games, small-sided games, Why ask questions like, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And, um, you know, coming from him was obviously quite, quite big because he was the Bournemouth manager and now he's the Newcastle manager and he's doing it well. So it was invaluable. And working for the Crown Prince as well, you know, we had great facilities, probably the best facilities in the world um, that other people would say, not just us. But he would always say, like, we can take care of the big things that are easy because we've got great pictures, we've got great facilities, but make sure you take care of the small detail because that's what matters, that's what people remember. So that was like a big learning for me when I was there. Always take care of the small detail. 
and like well, for those sessions, you see what you do some of the sessions, or you used to do you used to just work with some players individually. No, so like when teams came to training camp, I just observed. So like we we would typically like the club would approach us and say, look, we're coming to Dubai for 10 days, two weeks, whatever it might be for a training camp. Can we train at your facility? Yeah, we can. We used to get the approval. Um, then they would come and visit. They'd do a site visit. We'd have a look at the facilities that we had, how we'd set things up, which hotel they would stay at, um, how many training sessions they would do, what equipment they need, etc. And then I would just liaise with the club, with the, with the team manager or one of the coaches. And we just set up the sessions, like what equipment do you need today? What time are you training? And literally would just set it up and they would turn up and they'd roll out and they'd do everything. Um, they'd do the sessions and the recovery and stuff in the gym. And just observe and be around to, to help out. And if they needed anything, then I would, I would, I would help with it. Individuals, Man United. It would usually be during the season or international breaks where they would say, look, we've got a player who's injured. I've got a player who needs to do some conditioning work and we want him to come over and get some sunshine and work with you for, you know, five, six, seven periods. Can you put something together? And that, that was how the individual stuff came about. Um, so it was never really when the clubs were there, they had all their staff with them, they'd take care of it. It was more more afterwards, you know. So that kind of led you into doing a bit of individual work and you're still doing that today and on, on the side as such. What's the life, what's life like as an individual coach compared to working with a team? Um, it's obviously very different because you're working with one player instead of 24 players. Um, yeah. So your planning, your planning is it's as detailed as it would be if it was a team session, because that's just how you work as a coach. You know, you have to make sure that your, your session is set up appropriately. But um, it gives you more time to get to know the player or the person, sorry, you know, rather than just working with the player. Because when you're working with 24, it's just it's instructions about the session and you're going through the detail of what you're trying to get out of the session. But when you're working individually with a player, you're working on something specific, whether it's developing him in, in a positional sense or whether you're developing him from a conditioning point of view. But in those breaks, you get to have a chat to him about, you know, what's home life like? What's it like with his family, wife, kids? You know, are they expecting a baby to move in house? Are they new to the club? So you really get to know the person um, around the player because, you know, you don't get to do that in normal training sessions because, like I said, there's so much stuff going on and so many players around. So it's very different. It's a lot more challenging because obviously as a coach, when you're learning to be a coach and you're doing your education, you're always working with 10, 12, 15, 18, 24 players. When you're working with one player and it's just you, you know, your plan is, is so much more different. Um, you have to use a lot more equipment so players can visualise, you know, mannequins and poles and whatnot. Um, but it's a good challenge. It's a really good challenge because typically for me, when I work with individual players, you look at the player that's coming. So you look at them. Who are they? Like you try and figure out what kind of personality they've got. What position do they play? What style of football does the team that they are associated with play? You know, what's their position within that formation? How do they react in the four phases of the game? And then you've got to try and recreate those pictures with just two people, which is the coach, with the coach or me and and the player. So it's a challenge, and it's also a challenge to try and do the same thing in different ways because if you are working with a player for 
10 days and we've done individual camps for five weeks with players Whoa. so how do you keep it interesting yeah how do you keep oh. it interesting how do you keep it engaging it's it's really difficult but it's a challenge but it's, there's different elements to have to make it successful I suppose so it's not just a case of um what you see on not on your page but on, on other pages of uh just getting some person to run around a few cones and different no, video no. shots. It's, yeah, it's much more complex no, than exactly. that. It, you you touched yeah. something there. It's about um understanding and, and kind of getting under the bonnet of such and understand um the person you're working with. As a coach now, I've been in the game long enough. Would you rather ability or talent? Sorry, talent or mindset slash ability? It's a great question, and it's one that came up um, on the pro license when we worked with one of the uh, psychologists. And it was a question that was put to us, and it was, you know, if you had to work out as a percentage, what percentage is talent and what percentage is mindset and our mental strength, as you say. And it's a real difficult one because, you know, people argue both, but I think what I've learned from my experience as an individual coach and working through the levels of football and working at you know at the top level, mindset wins every time because you know you, you could be the most talented footballer on the planet, but if you don't have the right mindset and the right attitude and you're not prepared to work hard, never it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Um, of course, people will argue that you have to have the ability and the talent to get you in that position, and that's true. Um, but mindset for me. It's so important. It, it wins every time. You ended up... So, was there ever a fear... And excuse my English now. Was there ever a fear that you could be, you know, pocketed as an individual coach? You know, and I know you wanted to make that leap and you want to make that leap into managerial, which I'll, I'll delve into in a few minutes. But that opportunity then with Stockholm came... Could you have ended up being an individual coach and been, you know, categorised as that very easily? Or, or, or what am I trying to ask? I'm trying to ask that. Was there ever a fear that you could have been just an individual coach and not get the opportunity to be a manager then down the line? Yeah. Yeah, there was. There was. There was um, not, not so much a fear, but it was always in the back of your mind that if you do this long enough, you'll get pigeonholed as this and you won't be seen as anything else. And... I still, I think on reflection, I have a, I had a little bit of that in my first year with AIK, the role to the kind of to the club and to the general public in the wrong way. Because to me, I went in as the second assistant coach. We had the manager, we had the assistant manager, and I was the second assistant manager. But because they called me the individual coach and assistant coach. Everyone just assumed I was just doing the individual stuff. I was actually tagged by quite a lot of people as a, as a fitness coach. Never been a fitness coach. And <laughs> I would never pretend to be. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just it's just not what I am. And 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 you know, even some of the media team around the club used to think I was one of the fitness coaches, which was completely bizarre to me. Um, so there was there was a little bit of that, but that cleared itself up in the second year because it was clear that I was the assistant manager and. We all did individual work. I just happened to have quite a lot of experience with it because I did it for a period of time whilst I was here. So I think I kind of put that to bed a little bit after the 
the first 12 months of being at the club. But um, yeah, th- th- there is there is that problem because people, whatever people see or whatever people think you are, you know, you, you kind of become really dirty and it's quite hard to, to change that that opinion or mindset of you from, from the outside. And it's probably worth noting as well, like that, you know, ARK Stockholm, they played in the Champions League one, he played against Celtic or was, was that the Europa Cup? Yeah, we, we played in the Europa playoff against Celtic, yeah. So we played Champions League um, qualifiers and um, unbelievably, or not unbelievably, but really disappointingly, we lost um, in extra time against Maribor uh, and then dropped into the Europa playoff. And uh, Celtic had just fallen out of the Champions League qualifiers. They'd lost to Cluj the week before. And we watched the two legs against Cluj and we thought, you know, they're, they're there to be beaten. Like we had a uh, what we thought was a really solid game plan to beat Celtic. But the experience of going to Celtic Park was unbelievable. I mean, they absolutely battered us. They, they beat us 2-0 in Glasgow. Um, but it was the fastest game of football. It was the most intense game of football I think I've ever witnessed from the sideline. Like it went like in the blink of an eye. It felt like it was about 30 seconds a game. It was, it was crazy. Um, and then they beat us quite convincingly at home in Stockholm. But look, it was it was a great experience, and we were so close to getting to the group stage of Europa. Um, we were just unlucky with the draw, like come up against Celtic, and they were obviously hurting after missing out on Champions League qualification against FC Cluj. So they came out fighting against us, and and, and uh, really showed the quality. And it wasn't to be, but it was a great experience. So two things I want to delve into there. Um, can you? still visualise or do you still have a picture in your mind you know it's every Irish fella's dream to be on to go well to go to Celtic Park and uh, you know see what the, it's Celtic Park and it's Celtic's home stadium um, mm. is that called again Celtic Park is it mm. yeah To can you do you still have a picture of what it was like to stand on the sideline it was it was um, it was a great experience it was a funny experience um, and it was in intimidating experience I think um, like you said look I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend to be a Celtic fan but of course we, we used to watch Celtic uh, in, in the Irish Centre in Huddersfield and certainly all, the old firm games and, and obviously supporting Celtic so to go there was fantastic you know to train on the pitch the day before the game was great and to go around the stadium and you know a lot of um, a lot of good people around there and I was lucky enough to work with Celtic in Dubai before I left to join mm-hmm. AIK so I met Brendan Rodgers um, and met some of the players and um, the team manager is also called Brendan so I'd stayed in touch with him so he was great when we went over obviously we were playing against them but it was it was great to have that kind of connection um, it was funny because when we were doing the warm up the day of the game the Celtic fans behind the goal were giving us Dogs abuse, like just absolutely hammering us, and you know, you're Swedish this, you're Swedish that, and you wanted to say to them, I'm not even Swedish. Like, <laughs> if Celtic could play in any other team, I'd probably be supporting them, but you couldn't really say it at the time. Um, and it was intimidating because it's just a, a ferocious place to go. You know, when you when you're the away team in Europe and the atmosphere that they create and the noise that they make, um, and we just had a few. A couple of thousand fans in the corner, like crammed in the corner. It was, it was phenomenal. Like it was brilliant. You know, it was a Thursday night in Glasgow. It was in the summer. It was fantastic. 
Parkhead, sorry, that's the name of the, the Celtic Stadium. Um, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. you you spent three years with with Stockholm, and it was just kind of a combination of COVID and a new that led to probably new um change of new structure in, inside the club. What you know, looking back now, do you want to delve into what happened there, or, or what was your feeling of the whole thing? Um, COVID was difficult. Um, it was difficult because. It was unknown. Like obviously, we'd never, no one had ever experienced it. So there was no protocol in in place for what happens when you know when the pandemic comes. So that that was difficult to deal with. I suppose from a in a professional point of view, we'd been on pre season in the February. Um, Sweden dealt with COVID very differently to the rest of the world. They went for herd immunity, so not not really that much changed. Um, we were obviously aware of it. In, in our day-to-day lives, um, we didn't have to wear masks. There wasn't any kind of lockdown. So we had a different experience to what a lot of other people experienced. But from a, a professional point of view, in terms of the football, we'd been on camp in February. We'd played the Swedish Cup. The players, you know, as you go through pre-season, you, you build your periodization of your training, you build the, the intensity of your training. And that's following a science from your sports scientists and your fitness coaches. But then we were told, okay, there's going to be no football now for two months. And that was madness because it was like, okay, is it going to be two months? Is it going to be three months? Is it going to be six weeks? Nobody knew. So you couldn't plan. And of course, you can't just keep on training because players would burn out, players would get injured. But you never knew where the starting point of the season was. So at what level do you train? You know, you try and maintain where they are, which is very difficult, or do you just stop and then they give you a, a date that you start and then you try to build towards it. So it was completely unknown. It was a complete, it was guesswork, really. It was guesswork. Um, what would you have learned so, as a coach looking back now from that period, would say? Would you have any takeaways? Because you're a type of a guy that would take something from every period from, from the chats we had. Well, I suppose it was the experience that we went through of if it happened again or there was anything similar to it, you'd be you'd be better prepared for it. Um you realised how fragile health can be. Mm. You know, like when, when we did go back into training, we made it really, really difficult for anybody to get into the training ground. So everyone on a morning when they arrived would have a PCR test, you know, and you could only come in if you passed it. So if you didn't pass it, you weren't allowed in. So you had everybody players management coaches sat in a car park for like 45 minutes 60 minutes waiting but once you were in it was life was normal because we just thought well if we make it impossible to get in if you do get in then we can carry on as normal and we did so that was fine so we, we created our own kind of protocols for it which was good we were really happy with the fact that nobody brought covid into the club um and even though you know people's family members got covid then those players were told to stay away for a period of time so we managed it relatively well and started the season I suppose okay um, when we did start off but yeah I suppose the, the experience and takeaways is that okay well if something happens where a season delayed again or we have anything that happens to the world in terms of pandemics then you kind of got an idea or a little bit of a blueprint of how to deal with it The door closed on on Stockholm then what's your feeling on that because I, I, I from the conversations we had I think you, you felt you kind of un, unfinished business there yeah, I was really disappointed with it. I think um, 
I joined the club as you know league winners uh, the first season with the manager in place that we had at the time. You know, with three games to go, any any one of the top three could have won the league, or top four could have won the league, and that was the three Stockholm teams of Malmo. And we felt a little bit short. So from winning the league, we then finished fourth and didn't even qualify for Europe, which was really disappointing. Then the COVID season um, was a real bad time in terms of COVID and the pandemic, but also football-wise, it was disastrous because the manager decided to completely change um, how we played football, the style of football. We went to a completely different system and a different set of principles, which didn't work. And the longer it went on where it didn't work, the more we all kind of wanted to change. But the manager basically decided that, nah, we're going to play like this until I get sacked, which is fine for him because he knew he'd get sacked and he'd get paid out and that was it. But we were left to pick up the pieces. Um, and a big club like AIK, we didn't quite find ourselves in a relegation battle, but we were definitely at the wrong end of the table and it was very difficult to deal with and the pressure that came with that from the media and from the fans was hard. Um, and in the last season, you know, a new manager came in. Felt like we had a really good coach's room. Uh, how we worked was really good. We finished the season joint top. I mean, we lost the league on goal difference to Malmo by five or seven goals, I think it was. There. Plus seven goals on us in goal difference. And by all intents and purposes, I've been told that I was going to stay. Um, and then a few weeks before the end of the season, you know, I was told that I'd changed and I wasn't going to be staying. And that was really difficult to take and kind of brought up the same feelings of, you know, rejection and, and failure, I suppose, a little bit that I had, you know, when I was younger as a player. And, and again, you felt let down by the people around you because you trusted the people that you worked with and had a good relationship with them. And, you know, you were kind of left... Um, left in the lurch a little bit and my wife and I had just had our baby. Um, you know, she was a few months old. So it was a really, a really tough time and a lot of short uh, a short notice period to um to do something different. So it was hard. It was really hard. And it took me probably four or five months to kind of come through that, I suppose, uh, mentally because like I say you, you kind of feel yeah, you feel that rejection and you're disappointed and you kind of question whether you were good enough, etc. But then when you reflect and you process, you realise that it was out of your hands and this happens in football, it happens in every walk of life, I suppose, and it's uh, it's how you process it and deal with it and, and kind of move forward with it. And, you know. At that time, Din, it's amazing how things um, come up. Obviously, look, we, we you were over in, in, you're here in Dubai now at the moment, you're, you're doing, you know, you're in charge of the Cognita Football Academy um, and you're doing a lot of individual coaching for top, top players in the world. But aside from that, um, in the background, you are announced yourself, you were, your name was in the pot for the Bohemia's job. Do you want to delve into that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I suppose, um, Working at AIK is it's a high profile club, um, and doing my coach education in Ireland and having the name that I have, you know, and my family being in Ireland and having a good network in in Irish football, um, yeah, I, I, I was I was interviewed uh, for that job, which would would have been a, a great opportunity. Um, it didn't quite come off, which is fine, you know, but I think because of what I'd done in Sweden. Maybe the, you know, Bowles as a club look to, they look to do things a bit different, um, you know, culturally as a club and 
they probably had three or four people in Ireland that they thought were right for the job and probably thought, well, it's worth speaking to, to Sean see maybe there's something there. And I think some of the best of my knowledge, I got down to the last two. Um, and then it kind of got a little bit messy, I think, after that. And, you know, it ended up going going somebody else. But, look, it, it was great to be in the mix for it. I think League of Ireland is a really good league. There are some great clubs there. There are some really good coaches that I know. Um, and some fantastic players. You know, we had Zach Elbazadi, AIK, as an Irish player. There's lots of very good Irish players coming through in Ireland. And then, yeah, it would be it would be a great opportunity to manage the League of Ireland. I think it's only going to go from strength to strength. It was in a really strong position, you know, early 2000s, and it had a real dip. But I think the last four or five years, it's done really well. You know, teams qualifying, um, or, you know, playing Europa League qualifiers. But then last year, Shamrock Rovers qualifying for the Europa League group stage, which was fantastic for them and it was fantastic for Irish football. So I think um, it would be a good place to go to go manage if you get, get into a right club and a full-time club, good environment um, and get some good people around you. I think it would be a really good place to go. Let's uh let's go under the the bonnet a bit more. Um, I think people would be interested in in how the process actually works for these jobs. You know, is it like the same as any normal job, or like do you apply for it, or or does your name kind of come up in internal discussions within clubs, or what's the normal process? I think like anything, yeah. Um, there was obviously an opportunity to apply for it, and they will obviously like most high-profile jobs, people on boards and chairmen, etc., will have an idea or will have a few names of people who think they're interested to talk to. So it can happen one of two ways. I mean, in terms of the process, the first call or the first meeting was just to kind of get to know each other and figure out who you're talking to and what values do you hold and is there any kind of um, symmetry, I suppose, between between the, the, the coach and, and the club and do you share the same values and opinions? Do you want to play football in the same way? Do you want to work in the same way, etc.? That was the first part of it, which was which was a good a good conversation. And then the second one is a lot more in depth. Then it's it's a presentation that you have to put to to the club of or what I did anyway, I don't know if the same for the candidates, I assume it was, but it was about, you know, who I am, how I'd want to train, how I'd want to play football ideally because of course you know not to go off topic but it's very difficult to present to a club and say like I'll play this system and I want to play this style of football because they might not have the players to do that so you have to be kind of flat of course you need to have a starting point you need to be able to present something Um, so I presented how I think I would like to play how I would train uh, how that relates you know from the from the training pitch to the game players I'd want to recruit, how I would recruit, what the recruitment process is, exactly periodizing the training, the staff around me that I would like, um every sort of finer detail of, of of what I would want to do around the, the club and the kind of culture you want to bring, etc. And how you want to work with the board, you know, um the people you want around you, the positions, the roles and responsibilities of everybody. So it was really, really in depth and um an analysis on the current squad. That they have, who's staying, who's going, who would you like to bring in, who do you think is promising, who do you think should maybe go. So it's you have to do a lot of research, you have to watch a lot of games, and I spoke to a lot of people, and 
tried to get as much detail as I could around the club and tried to understand exactly who I was talking to and what kind of club I might go into if I was going to be the head coach. Wow, geez, that's a huge amount of research. Mm. So much going to it. Um, do you see, and you you touched on it before, um, would you see the League of Ireland so as a viable um, option for your managerial career at some stage down the line? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, um, like I say, if you look at the UEFA rankings of leagues, the Swedish top league, the Alsvenskan, is, is ranked higher than the League of Ireland Premier. Um, but I was an assistant coach in Sweden, so I, without sounding disrespectful to drop down a couple of levels in that ranking to go to League of Ireland as a head coach, I think it's, it's feasible, it's doable, um, but I think it would be a great step as well. Like I said, it's... Um, it's a league that's doing very well now. It's in a strong position. Um, they just recently put in the minimum wage for, for players. Mm. They're developing the academies within the clubs um, and they're really pushing for all clubs to be full-time and to develop academies all the way, you know, the age levels all the way through. So my feeling is that it's going to go from strength to strength and to go even further forward about ultimate goals is, is to get to... To Huddersfield Town maybe with the first team and ideally as, as the head coach so looking at other managers that have managed in League of Ireland have had the opportunity I think it was rumoured that Rory Higgins was wanted by Notts County Stephen Bradley was the Shamrock Rovers manager was wanted by Leighton Orient you know last season um, and you could go back historically Paul Cook who was who managed at Sligo Rovers has managed at Ipswich Town he's managed at Wigan Scarborough places like that mm-hmm. so it has happened and I think if you try to plot your journey on where you want to go, where you want to be, that that seems like a solid a solid place to go. I wouldn't be disrespectful to say or treat it as a as a stepping stone. But so, I think like everyone has so, Sam Allardyce, didn't he? Do the same thing with uh, yeah. <laughs> Limerick, yeah. Limerick Limerick FC back in the day. Uh, again, could be a, a stupid question, so I, I, I forgive my my ignorance. Um, head coach and manager are they both the same thing, or they would both have different roles? No, I think um, I think different roles. I think if you think of Alex Ferguson, he was a manager. I think if you think of Pep Guardiola, he's a coach. Um, very different. You know, Alex Ferguson managed the club like he knew every single member of staff. He was a manager. He managed people. He brought in coaches to do the coaching. Um, he was part of everything. He was part of this, how they developed their scouting network, you know, who they recruited in the canteen, all this sort of stuff that you can read about. And he talks about he was, a, he was a manager of a business, you know, whereas Pep Guardiola has a sports director and a very good one above him who takes care of a lot of, you know, responsibilities that he doesn't need to. So his focus is on the pitch. With the players training, he's in the room, in the coach's room, in the players' room, doing analysis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, they're very, very different roles. You touched on earlier in the the interview that you did some your your coaching certs and you started your coaching career in in under the FA, but you recently got your pro license from the FAI. How did the why did you change over to to the other side of the pond for the <laughs> pro license? It's a funny story because uh, growing up, I always had an Irish passport, always. And, um, you know, growing up in England and working at Huddersfield Town, etc., it was just the logical thing was to do 
the coaching courses with English FA. So I did the C license and the B license with them when I was in Dubai, 2013. Uh, I applied to do the A license and I was told that I couldn't because I was classed as a foreign application because I was abroad and I was on an Irish passport. So I wasn't considered English and I wasn't part, considered part of that network anymore, which was bizarre, but okay, fair enough. Um, so I wrote to Niall Regan and said, look, can I come and do the A licence in Ireland? They said, yeah, of course you can. So that kind of started that that relationship, which I was really happy about. Um, of course, you don't know what you're going into when you do it the, the, the first few days, but um, good people, really good people, really supportive. Um, you know, really try to get everybody through, always contactable, good course. I mean, you wait for, anyway, set the framework of these courses, whether you do it in Wales, England, Ireland, or Germany, or Spain, the framework is essentially the same. It's just how they choose to deliver it and, you know, how they choose the learning. Uh, and just kind of briefly, like, what's involved in the course? I know, like, you you, you, you probably, you know, you're given a team, you, that's a coursework or whatever, a case study. But what, roughly, what's involved in it, just for people to understand? Well, it obviously lays up to the B licence. Uh, to give you a quick overview, it's you coach up to 9v9, so... You, you look, of course, at analysis and, and periodization, but at a very basic level, and then you coach uh, you coach up to 9v9, but you pretty much focus on the team that you're coaching, so you against your opponent. When you go to the A licence, it's 11v11, so it's a lot more in-depth in terms of analysis, um, periodization, psychology in football, different coaching methods, you know. Um, but then you coach 11v11, and your final assessment, for example, is... I was given Argentina versus Holland from I think it was 2014, 16. It could be 2018. I can't remember now. No, it must have been 2016. Anyway, it was a game between Holland and Argentina. And it's like, right, Sean O'Shea for the FC, for example, is playing against Holland on Sunday. I want you to analyse them. How do they play in the four phases of the game? And how would you play against them? What is your game plan? So the first part of it is you present them. What do they do? Clips, you know, little bullet points, etc. And then you say, this is my game plan to play against them. But then when you go out onto the pitch, you have to coach all 22 players. So the first part of your session is you're given 22 players, basically. And 11 of them are your mythical Sean O'Shea AFC and the other 11 are Holland. So the first part of the session is you set up the opposing 11 and get them playing exactly like Holland would so the key points in each phase of the game and once you've got that right you then coach your team to deliver your game plan for that specific game in each of the four phases and you have to constantly be managing the 22 players and you have to do that for about 45 minutes but that's the culmination of about a year's work of doing analysis periodization, and doing different assignments etc um, so it's really tough it's really challenging. You do it with probably 16 to 20 other coaches. So you play in a lot of sessions. You see a lot of coaches, a lot of different coaching styles. Um, and it's invaluable what you do. The pro licence then is the last one that I've finished now, 18 months, nearly two years at the end because of COVID. But you, you're not on the pitch once. It's all about how to be a manager, how to deal with media, how to deal with players how to deal with managing up. Um you have to follow like you have to follow a country for the whole time that you're on the car. So I followed Sweden 
over 18 months. I had to watch every game. I had to clip every game. I had to do a report on every game, uh, every player. You know, not just attacking, defending transitions, but set pieces or throw-ins, free kicks, penalties, follow them in tournaments. Like the level of detail that you have to go into is phenomenal. You have to do presentations to a mythical board, uh, interview techniques, psychology. It's just it's everything about what it takes to be a you know a head coach or a manager of a football club. So it was it 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 really shapes you and, and gives you good good guidance into what to expect really when you're when you're at that the coaching level and, and managerial level. Yeah, because you're you're already working at that level. Like to get on the pro license, you have to be working in professional football, you know. So you've got to be working yeah. with twenty threes or seniors. So you're already working in that environment. So it's just kind of nailing down who you are and what what you are and what you want to be and how you how you're going to get there, you know. And why why do you do the things that you do and how do you talk to players and how do you deal with different scenarios with players and systems of play, you know, cultural differences and all those kind of things around it. You would have seen a huge amount of change, you know, over the last twenty years or all throughout your whole career, even from from playing and and reflecting on that period. A sixteen-year-old now versus a sixteen-year-old in your day, what you see a big difference? There obviously is. Like, what? How? How do you yeah, summarize it? I mean, I think one of the best examples that a lot of coaches I suppose that, we, that I talked to come up with is that if we were coached the way that we coach now we would have been infinitely better footballers if we had you know the science and the fitness coaches and nutritional advice and the analysis that is around under 16 under 18 footballers when we were playing again we would be infinitely better footballers the footballers that are coming through now are so much more intelligent than we were they understand the game better than we did um they're fitter they're stronger um you know they're so much more in tune with their bodies in terms of like nutrition analysis you know making their own clips of their own games we never used to watch get our own games and clips and stuff that was never done you know would they make um, clips of their own but, games yeah i mean like i had players in sweden where Literally on the bus on the way back home, if we'd played an away game, the analyst would send the game to the players and some of the young players would actually put make their own clips. And then you'd sit down and you'd go through the clips of what they did well, what they think they need to work on. If they went away with the national team, they'd come back with clips from playing for the Swedish in the 19s or the 21, saying, oh, look, have a look at this. What do you think about this? Like, where where can I do? Where can I improve? What can I do better? Whoa, just commitment's phenomenal, isn't so, it? Yeah, and like they understand sports science, you know, distances covered, accelerations, decelerations, all this sort of stuff. They could, they 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 understand it far better than we ever did. We were never exposed to it. I really have it when we were playing. Do you see a difference in players' attention? Um, you know, because obviously with social media and and phones have affected all of us. But can you see players now maybe even chewing out or, or zone out in dress rooms? But then at the other side, if they're at that level, they probably wouldn't be ready to be all tuned in. It's definitely different. Um, I think football, you know, it's always going to be a team sport because it's about the 11 players on the pitch. But someone, someone, I can't claim to have made this up, but I don't know where it came from, but someone said that the modern day player is more concerned about the name on the back of the shirt and the badge on the front. And, that kind of sums it up a little bit. Um, you know, that commitment to 
football club, that, that team, that real team feeling has gone a little bit. You see that in dressing rooms where players are on the phones and listening to their own music and travelling with AirPods and headphones and stuff like that. So, you know, the, that culture of togetherness has gone out of football a little bit. So the challenge now as a manager or as a coach, the coaching staff or a club is how do you manage that individual to get the best for the team rather than how do you get the best for the team? You know, it's, it's, it's really difficult, but um, that's how it is now. Um, you have to focus on every player. You have to treat them all differently because they are all different. We understand that as human beings that nobody's the same. Some people need an arm around the shoulder. Some people don't want to be spoken to. Some people need to be spoken to and quite sturdily. Like, you know, it's just figuring out, spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the people are in your dressing room and getting to know them and how they deal with things and what motivates them. Because some are motivated by money. Some of it motivated just by playing. Some are motivated because they love the club. Some do it because it's just something that they're good at and they don't really love football. There's so many different like uh, facets to it. So it's, it's a different challenge to what coaches we probably had when we were kids. Um, but it's just the modern game and it's evolved and it will continue to evolve and it'll be different again in 10 years' time and there'll be more science around it and different thought process on systems and just the way it is. You know, it's like anything, everything evolves and changes. So you have to have to adapt and move with it, really. You've had a chance to work with some of the best teams in the world and, and athletes as well. Um especially I think in those individual settings, you know, you, you be with players for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. You might do you come across or have you experienced them self, you know, doubting their decision to, to continue playing football or, you know, because if they're injured they might be, you know, in a negative headspace. What advice do you give them from your own experience? How can you draw upon upon that? It's, it's difficult. I worked with a few players who have had, you know, constant injuries in their careers, um, or really bad injuries where they might not come back. Um, the players who are co- who constantly have niggles and inju- injuries and never quite reach the the levels that they should or would have hoped to is really difficult. Um. You have to look for the small victories, um, you know, getting players back onto a pitch, even to a point where they can play 45 minutes or they can play, you know, one game in a three-game week. Little small victories are really, really important. But um, it's very difficult because ultimately it comes back to them themselves, you know, and about their mindset and how they deal with setbacks. Um, but it can be very difficult. And being injured is a very lonely place in football, you know, Um spend a lot of time in the physios room. You spend a lot of time with people like me doing individual sessions on your own. So you're away from the team. You don't get to enjoy travelling to games, playing in games, winning games or losing games. You don't get to have that experience as much as the other players. So it's it's very, very difficult. So it's a slow process. You have to really get to know the, the player. Um, and like I say, you just have to take the kind of small victories where you can. Some of them make it through and some of them you know, they fall off a cliff and drift out of the game and it's really disappointing. And it's really sad because seeing some players with unbelievable ability, um, you know, drop out of the game and, and, and kind of lose their way a little bit. And it's it's really sad to see it because they're good people and um, their bodies just can't handle the, the strain and the stress of the game, unfortunately. I'm conscious of time now, but I think these are, are quite important. Um, if you want, you, you can mention, you know, who has been the most 
who's been without going through a huge amount of people, who's been that one player that you, you kind of use as the barometer or as the metric as the top as a top athlete, as an all around player from mindset, from from physicality, um and resilience that you've worked with over the years? Yeah, like I say, you could list a lot, but I think the two that really kind of stand out, Virgil van Dijk and Patrice Evra. Um, I think Evra, because when I worked with him, he had, he, well, I worked with him from leaving United to being at Juve to going to Marseille to going to West Ham. So a lot of different clubs and a lot of different things happened to him. You know, he got banned for doing that karate kick and he'd been the captain of United and then left and gone to Juve and then was successful there. But, I mean, his his mindset, especially now when you, you look at the sort of stories that he told since he finished playing about, you know, abuse as a child and, you know, coming from Africa into France and growing up in France and what happened with the national team, his his mindset, unbreakable. I mean, he's a funny guy and everyone sees his, his Instagram and the videos that he does, but like when he's on a football pitch, he does everything. If you ask him to do 10 repetitions of something and he does seven good and three that are poor, he'll do an extra three to make sure he gets 10 good ones in. Like he, and that, that's the difference, you know, like like I said before about players that make it and the ones that don't. Like he's, his mindset is phenomenal. Um, he trains, he's a beast when it comes to training and that's why, you know, he's, he's, he's got as far as he's got. Van Dijk, same in terms of his mindset and the way he trains. But when I met, when I met him in his career and worked with him, he was at Southampton doing his rehab. Then he moved to Liverpool and I worked with him again when he was at Liverpool and just went from strength to strength, like, you know, unwavering confidence in his and belief, like, in his ability to, to make it. And when he was at Celtic, people were like, ah, oh, yeah, but it's not a great league and he's done okay. And then he came to Southampton and they were really successful in that period and he was phenomenal. And he's gone to Liverpool and he has become the best centre-back in the world. Okay, they're not having a great time at the minute, but, like, his attitude and how he plays football and what he's done in football over the last five or six years. Like, it's not surprising because he's just un- unbelievable. And as a person, very humble, very down-to-earth, great guy, great guy. Um, I believe you worked with some certain player who uh, is doing extremely well at the moment with, with Arsenal. Um, he definitely must have given him the rub of the green or something uh, that he's on fire. Yeah, I mean, that was a good one uh, just before... Well, during the World Cup, Eddie and Ketia, another great kid. You know, um, he's a London boy. Uh, you can see he's been really well looked after through through the Arsenal system. He's been there since he was nine years old, and great kid came over, wanted to work on his his fitness, and um, obviously they had a break because of the World Cup, and wanted to work on his finishing. So we had a week together where we did just that, you know, good dialogue between us. What do you want to work on? What type of things do you want to do? I put the sessions together. Turned up on time every day. He worked really hard. Um, really impressed with him. And look, he's gone back and gone on a on a great run. Um, and as one of my friends said, when he's gone on this scoring run, that people will credit Arteta, but the streets will remember that. His <laughs> 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 tra- training started with us in December, but no, look, he, he delighted for him because, like I say, when you work with players, especially like young players like that, who've got bags of potential, they come over on the holidays but they still want to train and they still want to work. You can see they've got that commitment. And obviously there's a reason that cliches exist, but like hard work obviously pays off because looking now, you know, Gabriel Jesus gets an injury. He goes in and people are like, oh yeah, well, he can fill the gap while he's injured, but we need him back. But 
he's gone in and shown that he's got real quality and you know he's pushing now to be a starting player every week so it's fantastic for him and how like how did he come across you you know do you work with a few darts and guys before like yeah just there? contact again like yeah, yeah yeah you know years ago obviously Arsenal came and trained at NAS and uh, they got in touch with NAS and said look Eddie wants to come over and can he train and then they said he can but we don't have the coach here anymore but Sean's here we can put you in touch with Sean and then they emailed me and we just hooked up and then I got in touch with Eddie and we, we linked up and sorted out the session brilliant brilliant we're, we're towards the end now nobody knows look nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow but look let's uh, let's just go with it uh, what does the next five years look like for you in an ideal world look we didn't know COVID was around the corner but you, you know what I mean yeah, um, if 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 it was an in an ideal world, um, the next move would be back into you know back into senior professional football again, whether that's as an assistant coach or a head coach. Um, it doesn't matter to me really. Um, I want to be a head coach, like I've said that before, and that's still I want to have a go at that at some point, but it doesn't need to be tomorrow. Um. It's all about working with the right people and getting into the right club. So if, you know, someone who I'm friends with or in my network of football was to go in as a head coach and said, I want you to come as the assistant, if it felt right, I would definitely take it. Um, but if something like the Bo's job or that kind of level of job came up for a head coach then and they wanted to talk, I would, of course, speak to them. So it's just opportunity and timing. Like, I'm, I'm happy to be back in Dubai and I love doing what I'm doing now. It's a very different type of job but I really enjoy it and it's been really successful. Um, but yeah, look, in an ideal world, that will that move will happen. Um, if we're talking about five years down the line, then I'll say what I always say, which is to be head coach of Huddersfield Town because that's my ultimate dream in football um, and that's what I'll sort of continue to work towards. So that will always, always be my answer to that because um, I think you have to be very clear on what your goals are and own them and that's mine and that's what I want to do. So... But whether it's five, ten, or fifteen years, that's what I'll push for, and hopefully it'll happen one day. Everyone, uh, I'm actually going to phrase this different because I, I normally ask people, "What are two? Yeah, well, actually, yeah, what are two daily non-negotiables for you?" That's easy. It's hard work, and it's respect. Um, I think hard work can be if you if you delve into it, can be a lot of things. It's, it's obviously like the right work ethic. It's the right attitude. Um, and then respect is, is it's just it's just something that has to happen. I think like um, you know, manners cost nothing, and it should be always be respectful of everyone. And working in football in different countries, you meet people from different countries, different ethnicities, different cultures, different sexualities. You you come across everything, and um, I think it's really important that you have to respect people. And do you always get on with everyone? No. Uh, do you make mistakes? Of course you do. Um. There are always heated moments in, in elite sport and, and in life in general, but I think uh, on the whole, like you've got to be respectful of, of other people um, and hard work. Like There's no excuse for not working hard. What's the best time so far of your coaching career? What has been the best time? <laughs> it's, well, it's a great, that is a great question. Oh, what comes to mind? I mean, I, sp- I suppose it was win- win- winning the derbies in uh, when I was in Sweden. They were the best times, especially when we played at home. Like when we were at AIK, 
know, Fred's Arena, 50,000 people, local derby, like the T4, the noise the fans made, the atmosphere on the pitch, the celebrations afterwards, like, they were great times to be, you know, you, you used to think afterwards, what a time to be alive, like, Stockholm as a city has three clubs, and if you won that derby, you were kings of Stockholm, and uh, the fans loved you, the celebration with the players, you know, going out into Stockholm in the evening, so the whole the whole day, the build up to it was just like phenomenal and nerve wracking. But when you win, it's unbelievable. That that was probably the the, the best times because obviously we were always pushing to win the league. We, they were always in competition with us. They were never, you know, at the lower end of the table. They were always second, third, fourth. They were always big games anyway because you needed to beat the teams around you. But you know, Stockholm derbies were were, were really big. You just the last question on you. You did answer it, but I'd like to just throw business people as well into the to the sphere. Um, the sphere. You've dealt with a lot of high performing players and and business people. You know, whether it's club level or whatever the case may be, or here in Dubai. Do you think they all have a common team or is there a common thread? You know, running through all of them. Yeah, I think. It's it's self belief. I think it's the belief that they can they can achieve what they wanna what they wanna believe, and it comes back to mindset. Like they don't take no for an answer. They deal with rejection really well, um, and they have unwavering self belief that they can achieve what they want to achieve. And like I say, I, I've got friends um, in business that have done that, and I've got experience of a lot of players that I've worked with that have done that, and that would be the common. The common theme, their work ethic is fantastic and they believe that they can do it. And it rubs off on you, like, you know. This just popped in my mind, but I want to ask you before I uh, I finish it. You've obviously a lot of experience now, but in the early days, how did you deal with that inner dialogue when you were early in your coaching career and, and met, you know, when you, when you dealt with different situations? Well, I think for me... It's different for everybody, but you know, um, I don't know what people around me would say, but I, I, I don't have a big ego. Um, I'm always happy to ask questions. I don't believe that I know everything, um, and I'm always eager to learn and learn off other people, especially people that I, um, you know, people that you you find common ground with, and people that you kind of attract to in terms of like the beliefs that they have and the way that they do things. So, I've always been very open about learning. Um, very easy to talk to people and 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 you know you, you come across a lot of coaches who have egos and think that they have to project that they know everything and they're in complete control of every situation and they know everything and they talk like academics and stuff I'm very much probably the opposite to that um and I always have been um yeah I suppose it comes from the experience of people I've been around but uh always been willing like I say always been willing to learn and been open to it and even though it's my coaching, I suppose, is about me, everything I've done when I've worked with teams, I've worked with players, it's always been about them, what benefits them the most, and kind of put it back onto them. It's not about me, it's about them. That's kind of the way the attitude I've always had with it. Brilliant. Look, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. I kept you um, well beyond what we agreed, so I do apologise about that. Yeah, um, no, no, I enjoy it. It's, it's good, it's, it's great to talk about it. It's, um, it's always really good to reflect like reflection is a big part of what of what you do so when you get the time to do it and when you ask questions that really make you kind of think and delve deep into the brain and, and, and pull stuff out it's, it's great like because it stands you in good stead going forward so I appreciate it 
Brilliant. Look, thanks very much for taking time out, Sean, to come on the Inside View podcast and best luck with everything going forward. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Speak soon. That is all from us on this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Sean. We'd ask you to rate, review and tell your friends, family about the podcast and be sure to click subscribe too if you haven't done so already. It makes a huge difference. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're available on all social media platforms. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember cred on a fin. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.